Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In Podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, distancing divers. Lou and I are so happy to be recording this conversation. We're in two separate locations. Lou is in her study. I can see her with... uh, She's sitting in the seat I normally sit in, actually, I've noticed. How are you coping with the social distancing? I think I'm coping pretty well, actually. I'm quite... I still feel quite connected to people. And it's very interesting because I think our generation is still hooked in with technology um, I think it's not the same for everybody. We might even talk about that later. But yeah, I think I'm pretty good. I do have a full house of children and husband. So we're all in different corners, which has its <laughs> moments. <laughs> uh but, it, but also, it's a very precious family time as well. So, you know. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. How are well, you coping? I'm well. I'm, I'm immune suppressed, as you know. So, I've been mm-hmm. in isolation for a while now. And I think I am starting to feel it a bit. I've sort of lost track of what day of the week it is. My husband has to keep going to work. So, we've had some upheavals here. But he's now living in some other designated parts of the house. I have found it very hard to read, interestingly. My concentration Mm. isn't that good and I'm much, much more tired and it feels like endless food preparation and endless cleaning up dishes. (laughs) Oh, my God, the endless cleaning up dishes. Seriously, I I thought this was an occasion for us to all really, really battle down and get some rules back in place (laughs) now that they've all come home. But, oh, no. No, Oh, no. Yeah. it's. um, I don't know how people are doing all the crafts and all those uh, amazing things they do where they set up and they go on a, a skateboard across the room and then you know without touching the floor and they jump from chair to chair and go around the whole house <laughs> how anyone has time to do that in this <laughs> social distancing I do not know but anyway <laughs> very parkour, strange household parkour yeah so we have a lot to talk about today we're going to recommend some books suitable for our times our very strange times we're going to talk about what we've read in the past week we're going to dive into middle march but only up to the end of chapter 42 which is about halfway we're going to talk about the stellar prize for fiction and we've each read a book from the shortlist So we had a request from a lovely listener, a friend of yours, Sue, to talk about books that deal with pandemics and adversity. And it's interesting, Lou, I think people are going to fall into one of two categories here, don't you? I think some people are going to say, I only want to read books that are happy and uplifting and comforting and I need to escape all of this, which is completely understandable. Mm. And I thought I would fall into that category. But I think I'm going to fall into the other category, which is I need to read books about pandemics. <laughs> I wouldn't have picked that for you at no. all. I wouldn't have picked that at all. <laughs> no, I, I, and yet, and yet, strangely, you know, and I do like my gory crime, and I do like stuff that's quite confronting. 
but I am in the other camp. Oh, isn't that weird? I want to read uplifting. I, I can't be, I really am, am disconnecting a little bit from the statistics and the, the, the terrible things that I'm hearing. Isn't that And I really funny? want to immerse myself in something that's a little bit more escapist and uplifting. I would not have picked that for you at all. Because no. I can remember for, across our life, I remember when um, the Azaria Chamberlain case was on, you followed that religiously you knew all the evidential details and I remember those American brothers that murdered their oh, parents yes, the Menendez brothers and you followed that to the nth degree I did I did so, I think I even got some transcripts from the court <laughs> <laughs> oh that's priceless I didn't know that so I we've gone completely in the opposite direction but yeah we have I'm done with it I'm done with it yeah isn't that funny I've been finding that books where everything is normal just seem a bit jarring and wrong and I feel like yelling out don't kiss her or you can't shake hands what are you thinking (laughs) don't you know that there's a pandemic (laughs) it's very very weird so we've decided that in the next episode we will recommend some books that we both like to read for escapism and I suspect there'll be quite a wide variety there because I think Lou and I go in different directions for escapism. But today we're going to give suggestions of books that cover people living under adversity or in isolation or during an epidemic or a pandemic. We're only going to do a shallow dive into these. We're not going to do a lengthy review of them, um, but we will post photos of them to our Instagram page and they'll be listed in our show notes. And because there are a lot of these lists around, you can sort of hardly go anywhere without coming across a list of pandemic books. I've tried to go a bit broad in my suggestions. Yes, you're right. Everybody's releasing lists at the moment, aren't they? Yes, exactly. So my first one is an obvious one, which is The Plague by Albert Camus, also known as uh, La Peste. It's literally one of my favourite books. It's the top of my list. And I won't speak at length about all of them, but this one I really recommend because... It has a double meaning. It's about the infiltration of Nazism into Germany. It's This is set in Algeria and it starts off with one person noticing a rat and then someone else notices a couple of rats a few days later and then a few days later people are starting to become a bit worried because there's a few more rats and it's that building tension, that escalation, that noticing that things aren't right, things are changing and it's so well done. I'm going to read it again. Yeah, I, I'd have to make an exception for that one because I, I, it is also one of my favourite books as well. I think it's brilliant. So, yeah, yeah thumbs up for that one. Such simple language. Like yeah. I would actually really love one day to be good enough to read it in the original French and I actually think it's not ridiculous for me to want to do that because it's so simple and it's not a complex, difficult classic like some arts doesn't have flourishy language it's very very straightforward so I love that one there is your COVID-19 challenge for dinner (laughs) in all the spare time that I do not have (laughs) Um, my next one is Cormac McCarthy's The Road I don't know why but I'm holding these up for Louise on our Skype thing that's a hard one to read it's a post-apocalyptic book but oh my god the writing is so good the writing is stunning. It's just a man and his son 
on a road. It's so harrowing, though. It's so harrowing. So harrowing. I'm not sure. I've only read it one, uh, maybe twice. I don't know that I could actually read it again now because it really is quite harrowing, but I just adored the writing, so that's a definite one. On to a, a much lighter one. I've got the Guernsey Literary and Potato oh, Peel yeah. Pie Society by Marianne Schaefer. And also, I think, on the later editions, Annie Barrows, her niece, who helped finish it off before she died. So that's a really good one to read for now because they're all stuck on Guernsey Island and the Nazis take over and there's literally no food, literally nothing to eat. And the islanders somehow come across an illicit pig and they decide to try and get together sneakily under the watchful gaze of the Nazis who are on the island. And when they're caught all gathering after curfew, they make up a story that they belong to the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. And then it just continues on from there. And it, it is literally one of my favourite books. It's the most heartwarming and beautiful stories of humanity and people sticking together in adversity and just could not recommend that one highly enough four times like this. The next one I've got is called The Dark Circle by Linda Grant and that's a book that I read in 2016 I think and it's set in a tuberculosis clinic and from memory, erythromycin, I think, might be the drug that, that they were meant to yeah. have. And they didn't have it then or it hadn't been developed. And so they were waiting for a drug. And so they were using all sorts of terrible other ineffective treatments. It wasn't brilliantly written, but I, I think it might be quite interesting to read now if that's the sort of thing that you're drawn to at this mm. stage. Uh, my next one is To Calais in Ordinary Time by James Meek, which we talked about in episode yeah. 10 which is called More Great British Books, and that is uh, set at the time of the bubonic plague in the 14th century. I just loved that book. It's not for everyone, but incredibly relevant, so really worth it. Another one, which I think you've also read, Lou, is uh, Victoria Hislop's The Island. Yes. I have it on um, CD, read by the gorgeous Amelia Fox. Oh, wow, And yep. I just adore her. She could read me the you know, yellow pages, the taxation act, <laughs> the yellow pages. And I would happily listen to it. And I think I bought this, you know, as one of those things that I, I play to go to sleep. So I'm not sure it's the best written, but it concerns a, um, an island called Spinalonga. It's a Greek island, which was the leper colony in Greece. So that might be something that you find relevant. Another one that I had was Wild Swans by Yung Chang. Lots of adversity in China, lots of food deprivation. It's a magnificent book. And it's a, in some ways, it's, a, it's because it's so big, it's a book you can get lost in, which I think is probably important at the moment. So it's Definitely. A, a real tome, isn't it? Definitely. I just adored that book and it's worth reading at any time, really. Mm. Another one I thought of similar to that or similar theme to that is Mao's Last Dancer mm. by Li Zhuang. not pronouncing that correctly. He is a friend of our friend Helen. Yes. And more lots of adversity in China, basically. So if we think we're doing it tough, that's a good one to read because yeah. we're really not in some ways. There, there really was no food to eat in his village and his family was desperate for him to escape when the opportunity came. And, of course, escaping through, you know, his role as a dancer in Mao's regime, but the regime itself 
imposed very severe restrictions on people as well. So they exactly. sort of had food deprivation, but they also had freedom deprivation as well, didn't they? Absolutely, yeah. And another one where, as you say, a deprivation imposed by the state is A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Towles. Mm. And that's the one with Count Alexander Rostov, and he has been put into under house arrest into a hotel in the Hotel Metropole, and the hotel becomes a character in itself, which I just loved. I, I don't even know how Amor Towles managed it, but he made that experience just completely gripping and really worth reading. I haven't read that yet. My husband's read it recently and absolutely loved it. So that's on my I think to, you would to love be it, read. Lou. Yeah. Because he, he's charming and the hotel's got all sorts of interesting nooks and crannies and it's fantastic. Another one is A Year of Wonders by Geraldine Brooks, which is set in, I think, 1666. And it's a maid servant in an English village during the plague. Uh, so very appropriate. Another one I thought of last night is The Golden Age by Joan London, and that's set in a 1950s Perth polio clinic. Yeah. I loved that book. I love her writing. She's mm. written a few books. Gilgamesh is also a f real favourite of mine, but that's a incredible insight into what it was like when polio was a real problem in the 1950s. Oh, this next one is another absolute favourite. Oh, they're all favourites. I'm very enthusiastic about my favourites. Nella Lasts War. It's hard to say that so that it doesn't sound funny over the microphone. She was a wife and a mother from Barrow in Furness in Lancashire, and she wrote a diary for the Mass Observation Archive Ooh. from 1939 until 1966. So they sent out these diaries to people all over the UK. It was and it was called the Mass Observation Archive. They retained all this, and it was a really clever idea to document life. And she was in a very unhappy marriage. She had two sons, and bizarrely, the outbreak of World War Two changed her life for the better. She was able to get out of the house. She mm. became a volunteer in all the various different women's volunteering associations. Mm. She made friends. Her world opened up yeah. bizarrely. It's the most beautiful, beautiful book. And I realised when I was just checking the dates last night that she, there are actually subsequent books, which I haven't read. I don't know why. So I'm going to dig those out now because she's completely honest in her diary. She holds nothing back, even though she knows these are being sent off to strangers and that they're going to be kept in perpetuity. It's very interesting the point that you just made about her world opening up. And we tend to think of, you know, periods of deprivation and enforced isolation as a time when people's worlds close. But... I think I'm finding that it's forcing people to find new and novel ways of being connected. And so I think for some people, for some grandparents, for example, who haven't bothered with technology and haven't bothered to sort of make the effort to, yeah, uh, and yeah. I don't mean that negatively, it just they simply haven't needed to, are now making an effort to sort of remain connected with family members and doing things online that they might not otherwise have done. So I think in some ways that... You know, it's obviously a terrible predicament we all find ourselves in, but there's also positives. Definitely. And people are endlessly resourceful and you find that out when you put people in difficult situations. Under yeah, yeah, absolutely. You find out what people are really made of. 
that's also a fantastic TV show, Nella Lasts War. It's called Housewife 49. That was her number on the Mass Observation Archive Index. And she's played by Victoria Wood, who just does the most superb job. So I would really recommend that to anyone. I don't know where you could find it, but people will find it. I'm sure it's really, really good. Yeah, no, I, I, look, I agree with you there. And they are some of my favourite books as well, that era, as you know. And we, of course, reviewed a single thread, I think, in episode nine, didn't we? Yes. The Tracy Chevalier book. Yes. Uh, and the protagonist in that, Violet Speedwell, she would go back to her bedsit and she would oh, have, you know, a little yeah. bit of bread or meagre rations to eat. But, again, that, that's about that period where... It's that sort of isolation that yeah, so many and, people had, yeah. And food was scarce. Um, yeah. So, have you finished with your list? I yeah, think, I have. I've yeah, done okay. My list. I don't yeah. have very many more to add. I, I did think of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. That is so appropriate. <laughs> yeah, because on, on so many levels, really, because you know, initially Jane is locked in the red room by her aunt, aunt Reed, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Sort of as a punishment, and then later, when the maids encourage the Reeds to send Jane to school. There's a typhus epidemic that sweeps the school oh, yeah, yep, yep. and kills one of her friends. The climax to the story, of course, is the fact that she moves in with Mr Rochester at Thornhill and later discovers that he has a wife. <laughs> in <laughs> isolation. <laughs> in isolation in the attic. Oh, I have a lot of problems with Jane Eyre, I have to say. I do too. I, do <laughs> I have a too. lot of problems with that book. But yeah. uh, anyway, that, that Jane Eyre is one that people might think about. Also, Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood, which, oh, yes. you know, it's my guilty read for today because I haven't finished it. It's sort of a world devastated by sort of genetic engineering and it includes a plague that's pretty much wiped out humanity. I haven't read that one, but I must read that now, oh, yeah. I, I couldn't finish it, to be honest. Oh. I think it must have been where I was at at the time. It it sort of descends into the sex industry and pornography and it was just too dystopian for me. I just just couldn't cope with it. I thought of Robinson Crusoe, which of course, I guess it's a bit of a young adult. Would we call it young adult fiction? Robinson Crusoe, maybe? Daniel Defoe. So Robinson Crusoe is a young man who, against the wishes of his parents, he takes to the seas for a more adventurous life. And, of course, he's shipwrecked and he's cast away on a remote tropical island for a very long time. I think it's almost 30 years. And he does meet, after about 20 years, I think he meets Man Friday. He rescues Man Friday from cannibals. But that's one that you could delve into. And just while you're on the subject of Daniel Defoe, I have seen in all these millions of lists that I've been coming across, he wrote another book about a plague and I can't remember the title Something of it. Something Years of Plague. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that as well. Which I haven't read, but... Yeah. No, I haven't either. And I wonder actually whether or not it was a companion to this. be interesting to know. Yeah, okay. And then one of my favourite books of all time, which you reminded me about the other day, of course, is The Life of Pi. Oh, yes. Which is just a magical, magical book. I love that book. And that, of course, is the 16-year-old boy who is on a cargo ship with his parents, which is sunk, and he finds himself on a lifeboat. And the only companions that he has are a hyena, a zebra, an orangutan, and a royal Bengal tiger called Robert Parker. So That's right. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And, of course, there are a number of endings. There are, there are alternate endings to it. And it caused lots of controversy at the time, the different endings, actually. But I just think it's a magical book. And, look, that is, that is one that I would read now. I would read it again now yeah. because I think it's a yeah. beautiful story. What have you read recently, Lou? Oh, look, I am really excited to review this book today. The book I'm doing is The Mercies by Karen Millwood Hargrave. Uh, oh, she's yeah. a British author. The Mercies is an electric book. It's a book about women. It's a book about love, power and feminist resistance. And I think it's appropriate that we are talking about it today because the women are living on a very remote island. So the book is set in 1617 uh, on an island called Vardo, which is an Arctic island to the extreme northeast of Norway. And does that really exist, that island, or is it a fictional island? Absolutely it does. Oh. No, it absolutely does. It's in the Finnmark or was in the Finnmark territory of Norway which, by the way, is different to Finland. So the Finnmark Territory is a, is a northeastern territory in okay. Norway. So the landscape is very present in this book. It's atmospheric, it's bleak, and it's unforgiving. It's Christmas Eve, and almost all of the menfolk on the island are out fishing. And that's the traditional work of the island. And there is the most devastating storm. The women hear the storm and they go out and watch it and they see the boat flounder and oh, all their menfolk are lost at sea. Oh, gosh. So Marn, who is one of the principal characters in the book, she loses her father, her brother, and she also loses her betrothed. And so she's left with her mother and her brother's wife, Dinna, who is expecting a baby. And this is a similar story for most of the women on the island. I think there's about 13 men who are left and they're either very elderly or they're young boys. And they're a deeply faithful community and at the centre of their lives is the kirka, the church. And a few days after the boating accident, everyone is obviously still reeling from the loss. It's the Sabbath and they all gather at church. And we get a glimpse that some of the women in the community are deeply superstitious. So apparently the boat with the men had gone in search of a huge shoal of fish, which was moving because of the presence of a whale. So there's now talk at the Kirka that the whale has lured the boat deliberately into the storm. Wow. Now, Maan's sister-in-law, Dina, is a Sami and she's the only Sami on Vado. And the Samis are the indigenous people of the Finnmark region, also known as the Laps. And many of the religious women on Vado believe that the Samis are witches. Oh, dear. And when, if, when, when one of the women in the Kirka sees Dinner walk in to the church, she refers to the devil's dark work. I know, this is not going to end well. <laughs> Very early on in the book, and it sort of really sets you on edge. Yeah. And it turns out that many of the Kirka going Vado residents, who are all Christians, but they also have little dolls that are made by the laps, which are known as poppets. And this is all based on truth. Truth on historical records, yeah. And they are they're sort of religious talisman and they've always used these poppets harmoniously alongside their Christian beliefs. Uh, now, the minister of the Kirka has, is lost at sea, so a new minister arrives and he's a very weak man and he's very easily influenced. 
But the women do, as women do in adversity, they step up because they've got no choice. Some of them are natural leaders in the community and they make some quick decisions about who will take over the livestock, who will herd the reindeer. And one of the characters, I just love her, is it's written as Kirsten, but the pronunciation is apparently Shisten. And she is a very independent woman and she naturally assumes charge. And Marne really likes her. She's drawn to her. They get on very well. So for about 18 months, the women pretty much keep the island running. They work alongside each other. They teach each other to carry out the work that is previously done by the men. But as you can imagine, as is foreshadowed, there is disquiet growing under the surface about the propriety of women in the 1600s. They're dressing as men. They're fishing. They're caring for the livestock and a fracture begins to open up in the community. There's, you know, the traditional bigoted and superstitious people on the one hand, and unfortunately Man's mum is mother is part of that group of women. Oh dear. And then there's the other part of the camp who are more open and progressive. And after 18 months, it's announced that a new lensman, which is, I suppose, like a district commander, he's been appointed by the king. And he has, in turn, appointed a commissioner who will come to oversee Vardo Island. Oh, no. And he will be coming from Scotland. So the patriarchy say, oh, you women are not doing it. Absolutely. You shouldn't be doing this. We're going to send in a man to save you. We're going to send in a man. Absolutely. I'm not going to tell you why this particular Scotsman, who is called Absalom Cornett, I'm not going to tell you why he's been chosen. But it does become clear that he is determined to track down any magic, magic which he believes is responsible for the storm. Oh, no. And he is going to root out any corrupt influences in Vardo. So Cornet travels to Norway. He stops off at the capital in Bergen to choose a teenage bride. Oh, God. And her name is Ursa. And then they make the long voyage to Vardo on a ship that is owned by Ursa's father. And, of course, he is welcomed with open arms by the minister and the more traditional widows on the island. All the suspicious ones. Yes, who are to be found in a huddle with him routinely. Oh, no. And his bride, Ursa, becomes central to the story, but I'm not going to give away any more than I already have. And, look, it's just interesting, as an aside, in 1618 a year after the start of this book, King James VI of Scotland introduced laws against witchcraft. And in the book, Cornet is appointed by a new lensman of the Finnmark region who is a John Cunningham. And that name is taken from the real John Cunningham, who, wow. was, who was himself a Scot, who was brought to Norway by the king to target the Sami women. So he really did, this really did happen. Yeah, and there were 52 witchcraft trials in Norway. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so it is just a fabulous book. That sounds so good, Louise. Um, I have to read that now. Yeah, it's it's very early days, Virginia, but this may well be on my top 2020 list. It's fabulous. That is so cool. Well, that setup that you've just told me, I just have to find out what happens. And anything to do with witchcraft... I just love. Yeah, it's superb. And I've got to be honest, when I first 
picked that book up in the bookshop and I turned it over and I read that it was a story set in 1617. Yeah, I, thought, think, oh. I thought to myself, oh, do I really want to read this? Yeah, oh, it's, well, it'll be it's, all old and dated. Yeah, it is fantastic. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. What have you been, what's the new release that you've been reading? I've got two books, but they're both very short. So the first one is an absolutely charming little book called Three Apples Fell from the Sky by Noreen Abgarian. And it's set in an isolated village in Armenia. I'm holding it up for Louise on mm. Skype. Very pretty cover. Yeah. And it's more of a fable in that it has a, a fable feel to it. Nadine is a Russian writer. She's of Armenian origin and she lives in Moscow. And the book's been translated by Lisa Hayden, who seems to translate a lot of Russian novels. And she's won prizes and all sorts of things. The book's divided into three parts. They're called For the One Who Saw, For the One Who Told the Story, and For the One Who Listened. Oh, wow. And they represent the three apples that fell from the sky. And I just love that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's very charming and gentle. And there's a lot of superstition, as there was in past times, like with your Mercy's book. I mean, that's how people tried to understand their world and make mm. sense of things that, that they didn't understand when back when we didn't have the scientific knowledge that we have now. Um, so this spans generations. It has that sort of sweeping feel to it. It sort of reminded me while I was reading it a little bit of... Some of those books, like the Gabriel Garcia Marquez book, Love in the Time of Cholera, yes, 100 yeah. Years of Solitude, that sort of thing, or uh, House of the Spirits, yeah. they're sort of a, a bit mystical. And in this one, you don't delve too deeply into many of the characters. There's not a lot of dialogue. It's, it's just more told as a, a general story. It's, you know, it's quite short. But it describes the daily lives of the villagers and, importantly, it opens with a character who, for various reasons, thinks that she's dying and then it follows her and it goes back and forth a little bit and then there's a romance that comes into the village between two very unlikely people. And by an amazing coincidence, this is also a plague book Ah. Yeah, there's every sort of force majeure or act of God that you can possibly think of. First of all, there was a plague of rats and mice. Then there was an impenetrable veil of blackness in the sky, which turned out to be a plague of insects. Then there was a drought, then famine, and then there was a terrible earthquake where half the village just disappeared down a crevasse. And then there was a flood oh. at one point. But in spite of all those sort of biblical events, the villagers retain their warmth and their humour and all their superstitions and also all their home remedies for illnesses. You know, they, they get out witch hazel and they rub on a paste of needlewort and all, the, all those sort of things that, mm. of course, well, I don't think would have had any impact on any, anything really. Um, I don't believe in a lot of that stuff, but... Really charming, absolutely lovely, and I really enjoyed it. It was it was a lovely thing to read, and even though it is a plague book, it was quite nice escapism in some ways because it's this tiny little remote village that's mm. very cut off from the rest of the world and the rest of the country. 
And then the second book I read, it's only 125 pages, and it's one that was also sent to me. That Both of these were sent to me by Bloomsbury. This one's called Rest and Be Thankful by Emma Glass. How lovely. And it's a short book in which a paediatric nurse in London is talking. She's narrating it to her husband. So it's another one of these ones where she's speaking in the second person. Mm. So she said, you know, along the way she says, and you did this and you did that and you thought this and I, I reached out for you. And But her marriage is coming to an end and she's on the verge of a collapse. And it's also incredibly pertinent to our times. It's amazing that I picked up these two books, neither of which I would have thought would have any bearing on being in a pandemic and having to be in isolation. But... You know, at a time when we're seeing all the NHS nurses being clapped in London at 8 o'clock every yes. night and people honking their horns and we're seeing photographs on Instagram of all the nurses and doctors going in with their face shields and things, this is a nurse in a paediatric unit where the babies are really fighting for their lives and, and, and young children as well. So it's strangely pertinent. It sounds more bleak than it felt, interestingly, and I, I, I'm not sure why, but she managed to make it sort of bearable in some way. I think it's partly because her writing is so beautiful. It's not her first book. She's written another one, which I think was very well received, called Peach, which I hadn't come across it. There's a lot of meticulous washing of hands and being very careful not to infect the newborn babies and the young children in the ward. And it's all about her relationships with the parents of the children, the children themselves and the other doctors and nurses, all against the background that her relationship, her marriage is falling apart. And she herself, Emma Glass, is a writer and a paediatric nurse in London. So she really knows what she's writing about and you can tell. Mm. You can tell it's largely autobiographical, I think. Not necessarily the part about the husband, I don't know, but certainly the professional element of it. How interesting. Yeah, I read it in one sitting and loved it. I thought it was stunning, really, really good. So that's our current reads. Now we were going to talk about Middlemarch and you were going to kick off. So we've been reading Middlemarch across March and um, here we are. We're going to talk about the first half. I think we've agreed, haven't we, that, you know, we may have to suspend some of the rules about spoilers for our discussion yes. Middlemarch yes. because we've invited people to read along with us. Um, we're obviously not going to give away everything, but we are going to chat about a few things that do give away parts of the plot. So uh, I think we'd all agree that Middlemarch was quite unusual for its day, being the Victorian era, of course. It, it, it wasn't, it isn't typical of the romance or relationship novels that would have been no. expected to have been written by a woman in that era. True. And, of course, George Eliot is the pen name for Marianne Evans, and Evans wanted to be taken very seriously as a writer, so she assumed a man's name, and she took the name George from her partner, George Lewis, at the time. And we'll talk a lot more about Marianne Evans when we review Loving George Eliot in, mm. in a few episodes' time. Yep. But she, she wrote a collection of short stories, and she actually wrote five novels before Middlemarch, so she was not a typical Victorian woman by any, not at by all. any means. So on the surface, Middlemarch appears to be a sort of a study of a series of relationships in 
a deeply provincial part of England, the Midlands. In fact, it was called A Study of Provincial Life, and it was released in eight books. And it covers a four-year period from 1829 to 1832 in this fictitious town, Middlemarch, which some people believe to be the city of Coventry in the UK. But as the different characters of Middlemarch emerge, you know, their different roles in the community, their very strongly held opinions and prejudices, you realise that the book is as serious as Middlemarch intended because the changes that are being experienced in English society as a whole at the time, in the early to mid-1800s, are sort of all being reflected in this inward-looking community of Middlemarch. Yes, yes. So there are the traditional members of the community who prefer things to remain as they always have, and then there's the progressive members whose actions sort of are pushing more of a sort of, I suppose, reform agenda. Against the background that politically there's a lot of reform going on. Absolutely. In 1832, yeah, 1832. It mirrors what's going on politically, yeah. Uh, I think there's reference to the Reform Act, there's reference to the Roman Catholic Relief Act, uh, and, of course, the role of newspapers who are starting to push different political agendas. Yes. And it's interesting because we observe these characters who are rushing into marriages that are ultimately unsuitable, and the pairings are often one party who represents the old society and one, and one who represents the new. So that, that's quite interesting. And, in fact, that's true of a lot of the familial pairings as well. And then I guess the other thematic things I might mention is obviously the themes of science and religion are very strong. So I was very surprised how George Eliot wrote a community that was so secular you know, I would have thought that this community would have been much more religious, but I think that Eliot was, well, she clearly was, considering the growing role of science compared to the, yep. you know, the role of religion in the community. Yes, yes. And, and obviously that's reflected in the politics as well. So, you know, strangely for me, there were parallels with the Mercy's book. I love it when that happens when you, with your books. I love it. Because, you know, we have this progressive group of women who are, you yeah. know, not bound up in superstition and and the old ways and they're trying to move on to new ways. And You've so, got that you dichotomy know. of the, yeah. the two groups. Yeah. So the first character that we meet in book one is Miss Dorothea Brooke. And I'm just going to talk a little bit about Dorothea today and a couple of the other women in the book. So she's 19 and she lives with her uncle, Mr. Brooke. And you and I have chatted about this. He's yes. one of one of our yes. favourites. Yes, definitely. And he has his manor estate, Tipton Grange. And Celia, her sister, and Dorothea live there. They've come to live there a year earlier, having lost their parents. And Dorothea is very beautiful. She's serious she's puritanical she's quite pious and again she's also unusual for her times because she's very open and outspoken she's not at all concerned with keeping up social appearances Uh, and Mm. I think that in some ways reflects her naivety so she's very intense and she's complicated and she's absolutely determined that she will live on an intellectual plane so she's yearning for a partner with whom she can have a spiritual connection and that of course makes her impatient and prickly with a lot of the men who might have an interest in her she's very sort of um hungry 
That's how I think of her. She's yes. hungry for intellectual stimulation. She's obviously got a, a very bright mind and she's just not being challenged. I agree completely with you. That's right. But she's also hungry for that stimulation so that she can convert it to action. She is yes. somebody who wants not to... Not for its own to, sake, like someone no. else in the book. <laughs> Um, so her, I'll just mention her younger sister, Celia. She's much more down to earth and practical. She doesn't really understand her sister. She isn't as intellectual, but she's happy and she's able to reach a sort of a state of contentment that Dorothea struggles with. And so I think that Celia's capacity to sort of live in the present rather than in her head means that Celia ultimately is more wiser, really, and more grounded. Definitely. Now, just one thing I wanted to flag, and we might talk about it in the next episode a little bit more. I really do think that your opinion of M- Middlemarch is impacted upon when you read it. Definitely. So many essays have been written by women about the huge impact that Middlemarch had on them when they read it as young women, mm. how they responded themselves to these high ideals that Dorothea had and how their views changed when they revisited the book when they were older. Yeah. And there's a huge feminist debate, isn't there, about Dorothea and her choices. Yep. So we, we might, that's something we might yeah, touch okay. on because it's very interesting part of the book. Mm. So Dorothea has lots of plans and schemes. She wants to do something worthwhile with her life and she longs to be useful and to have control over her decisions. She's already started an infant school in the Middlemarch village and she's drawing up some plans to build some cottages for tenants on her uncle's estate. And the scene is set when two gentlemen come to dine with the Brooks at Tipton Grange. One is their neighbour, Sir James Chetham, and the other is the Reverend Edward Casorban. And Chetham incidentally mentions that he is trying to create a new model of farming to assist the tenants with the use of his land. And, of course, Dorothea approves of this greatly. But she's attracted to the clergyman, Casorban, She thinks he's intellectual and high-minded and accomplished and he doesn't appear to be interested in small talk like her. So she imagines she could learn a great deal from him and this is what she's looking for. Yeah. So as we know, her uncle goes to stay with Kusorban for a couple of days and he returns with a written proposal of marriage for Dorothea. And, oh, my goodness, it's the most pompous, (laughs) self-serving proposal. I know. It's just brilliant. He refers to Dorothea as somebody who exhibits a fitness to become devoted to him. <laughs> it's just brilliant. Just brilliant. I just oh love no. that. And I'm just going to read this little passage because this is George Eliot lamenting about Dorothea's response. How could it occur to her to examine the letter, to look at it critically as a profession of love? Her whole soul was possessed by the fact that a fuller life was opening before her. She was a neophyte about to enter on a higher grade of initiation. It's just yeah. there's a sadness, isn't there, really, at her naivety. And, and she's only 19. She's a baby. Mr. Brooke throws a large engagement party for the couple. And I, and I love this scene because this was Elliot introducing to us so many more of the members of Middlemarch Society whose lives form sort of part of the subsequent books. And it's a very richly drawn scene, isn't it? All the different chats between the people at the party and you get a real sense of their preoccupations, their pettiness 
and the things that sort of drive them within this very insular area of England. Yeah, I was going to talk about Mr Bulstrode just because I, I just lit up when I read the section about him and I'll explain why as I go on. But So he's, his name is Nicholas Bulstrode. He's a wealthy banker and he is married to Mr Vincey's sister, Harriet. Mm. And he's a proud Methodist who tries to impose his beliefs on Middlemarch society. And I found this book fascinating and it reminded me a lot of Anthony Trollope's Barchester Chronicles. Mm. And I'm a huge Trollope fan. And interestingly, I looked it up and Trollope published the six books in the Barchester Chronicles from 1855 to 1867. And Middlemarch was published across 1871 to 72. So those Barchester Chronicle books would have been coming out leading up to the time when um, Middlemarch was published. So... My guess is that Marianne Evans might have been a little bit influenced by Trollope in that little subplot. I mean, it's a, yes. it's a, a tiny part of it. But the early books in the Barsetshire Chronicles by Trollope address issues of power in the church and who really wields that power, how those people manipulate others, how the wrong person for a job can be appointed because of that politics. Yes. <laughs> And when people have to choose whose side to take yeah, because they can see the consequences of each decision and they may take the side that they really would rather not take because there are other consequences down the track that they can foresee. And essentially this little part of Middlemarch is a study of Mr Bulstrode manipulating people to make himself powerful. And I find that accretion of power so interesting. I've known people like that. I've worked with people like that. And I've never quite understood them. And I've always been fascinated to to watch how they accomplish it Mm. because it's so foreign to me, I suppose. I just love the way she showed the process by which Dr Lydgate came to exercise his vote as to who should be the vicar. attached to the new hospital. So that's a sort of a little microcosm of politicking that goes on. And assumes such a huge importance in the community as well, doesn't it? Yeah, and I I don't know because I haven't read past Chapter 42, but I suspect she did that for a reason and, and it will possibly become important down the track in the book. Maybe not, but we shall see. So that Mr Bulstrode has made it very clear to Dr Lydgate, who is a newcomer to the town, that he wants the incumbent, uh, Mr Fairbrother, to not continue to be the vicar for the new hospital that he's building with all his money and that he wants to appoint, I think his name is Tyke. Yes, Tyke. A different vicar uh, who is not as appropriate, but for whatever reason, Bulstrode obviously thinks that this other vicar will be more in his pocket and will perhaps do his bidding. He's obviously got an agenda there. And initially, you can see Dr Lydgate is quite proud of the fact that he's not going to get drawn into this. He doesn't really care who's the vicar. It's not going to make a difference to him who the vicar is or isn't. And he becomes, in fact, very friendly with the incumbent, Mr Fairbrother. Yes. And sees that he's a very good man. He's not particularly devoted to his role in the church. He's actually far more interested in his insect collection. 
<laughs> he's not as devout as Mr. Tyke, is he? Yeah, and he and I think he admits that he he doesn't have the calling yeah. that he should that a vicar should have, and he admits that he's probably in the wrong job. <laughs> And Dr. Lydgate's quite surprised by that, and, but but it's true. I mean, he really people took on positions back then that, that the choices just weren't available that we have now. Mm-hmm. So I was just completely horrified by it all, just watching it all unfold, and I just felt so disappointed by Dr. Lydgate, <laughs> you know, in the choices that he made, because I, up up until then I had really thought, oh, you know, he was he was painted as quite a romantic character, and in, in relation to Rosamond and I, I was quite delighted with him and, you know, and then I became quite disappointed in the way he voted um, <laughs> in what became a very public vote because he turned up late to the, to yes. the board meeting and everybody <laughs> else had cast their vote in writing and it was evenly split. Everyone was going to know which way he voted, which I, I just loved the way that was written. I thought it was so brilliant. And it's a tiny part of this first section, but it, it just really tickled my fancy. And we get to see that his friendship and his regard for Mr Fairbrother are just no match for Dr Lydgate's personal ambition. A game of chess. And his awareness that Mr Bulstrode may well be able to assist him in his career. And, of course, he's a doctor and this is a hospital, so... It's not hard to figure out that he doesn't want to get Mr Bullstrode offside. So I suspect we'll see more of the aptly named Mr Bullstrode <laughs> in the second half of the book. I hope we do because he just fascinates me. It's strangely modern, isn't it? These these themes are universal. Human beings don't change. They, no. There's no technology and they don't have cars and electricity and all sorts of things. But, but everything but else is exactly, Everything else yeah. could be written today. Yeah, there's it absolutely really, could. There's really no the difference. The sort of public servant games of yep. chess. It's just superb. And and all of the, um, the conversations at the party, everybody is doing the numbers. Everybody yep. knows who's going to vote which way everybody knows what everyone else's views are and who they're aligned with and it's fascinating I find it very fascinating the other character that I particularly loved as you mentioned is the uncle Mr Brooke and um, Mm. he does remind me a little bit of Henry Woodhouse in Jane Austen's Emma Mm. which was published in 1815 just to put that in context Mm. and Middlemarch was in 1871 so Emma had been out for a a long time. Mr Woodhouse is another valetudinarian, like (laughs) Uncle Davy in the Nancy Mitford novels. Mr Woodhouse is obsessed with his health and his body and he's a very endearing, slightly out-of-touch person who means well, but he wants all those that he loves around him. And Mr Brooke, just there's a similar feel to him. He's also someone who means well and he tries to do the right thing but he's also a little bit out of touch. And he's been written with a similar amount of warmth, I think. Yes, he's been very kind and generous in the way he's taken on his mm. nieces and raised them after they were orphaned. And they're clearly very fond of him, even though they're probably quite different from him. So I really love the way he's written. I think he's delightful and I think we're going to see a bit more from him because it's apparent that he thinks he's got something to contribute in the world of politics and he's going to run and uh, he's also very interested in acquiring a newspaper 
and so he thinks he's got something to say. So I'm really looking forward to that. He's very encouraging of others, isn't he? He's very, sort yes. of, you know, he's yes. sort of, he always has something to offer others and encourage others. You might not necessarily yes. agree with him, but yeah, yeah, he's a very, you're right. He's a very warm character. Yeah. And query whether or not he should have interfered in his niece's choice of Mr. Kasorban and whether he, you know, he could see that was not a good choice for her. And he definitely did try and encourage her in the other direction with Mr Chetham. Yes. But he didn't interfere. No, and, and obviously the more conservative members of the community traditional thought he should have thought he should have but of course he he doesn't fall on that side he falls more on the reforming side yeah and people make their own choices and people are are free independent beings and Dorothea was very headstrong I think there's a lovely passage in the book where he's criticized for not having chosen a female companion for his nieces to educate them and to look after them but he doesn't and Dorothea is basically in charge of his household and that's the way it is so he wasn't going to ultimately stand up to her no um, the other male characters that I find so interesting are Mr. Kasorban <laughs> and his distant cousin, Mr. Ladislav. I'm going to pronounce it Ladislav. I was just fascinated by the way Mr. Kasorban felt that he had the right to tell Mr. Ladislav that he couldn't be a newspaper editor yes. because that wasn't in keeping with Mr. Kasorban's social standing. <laughs> and that letter that he wrote to him He said in the letter that I have some claim to the exercise of a veto here would not, I believe, be denied by any reasonable person cognizant of the relations between us. (laughs) Relations which, though thrown into the past by your recent procedure, are not thereby annulled in their character of determining antecedents. (laughs) He's so pompous. So pompous and uh, so full of his own entitlement to tell another person how to make a living. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, and obviously that was not unusual in those times, which is so interesting, isn't it, to see how much some social mores have changed for the better and that's one of them. But as is often the case, those that are the most sort of pompous are really concealing their own insecurities. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Mr. Corbyn really is quite a sad character. Yes. He's, as you said, he's not portrayed as all bad. You know, he's been working feverishly away on this obscure academic project and he'll never <laughs> publish it. He'll never finish it. No, it'll never see the light of day. And he's given it, it's his life's work and it's all for nothing. I know. And what's even sadder is that for him, even worse than himself knowing that he's a failure and that his work will never see the light of day, is the shame of realising that his wife has now realised that too. Yes, yes, yeah, he's quite sympathetic. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought I thought that was fantastic and I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens there. We're at the point where he's obviously got a serious heart condition and is wary about the friendship between his wife and his distant cousin. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how that pans out. Yes. So um, now after we finish recording, we'll head off and finish reading the other half of Middle March. And uh, we'll discuss that in the next episode. And uh, I think this is your experience as well, Ginny. I mean, I, you know, we talked about struggling with the first throwing ourselves into the book, but I'm absolutely right in there now. I'm loving it. Me too. Oh, me too. I, which is often what happens with me with a big book, a big classic like this. Uh, it takes me a little while to get used to the old 
language and the yes. wordiness and the flourishiness of it. But then I really start to luxuriate in yes. it. I just I love being there and I love watching it all unfold. So and because of the language, you have to give it your full attention. You you miss a word and it, it, you just have to really immerse yourself in it, don't you? Yeah. yeah. And if you think, oh, hang on, I, I lost my concentration there for a moment, it's really worth, I always go back and read the whole bit again yes. so that I'm not moving forward yeah. and skimming bits. Or, you know, I really make sure I'm really paying attention. So, yeah, it's going really well. I'm really glad we chose it. Um, yes, yeah, so I think we'll be really glad that we've we've done this one. So am I. So next we were going to speak about the Stella Prize for fiction. Yeah, well look, we love to talk about the different prizes for writing on the podcast. In fact, there's a couple coming up for Western Australia writers later in the year and we'll look forward to talking about them in future episodes. But the Stella Prize that we're talking about today is an Australian annual prize for writing by Australian women in all genres, fiction and non-fiction, and that's quite unusual. It's worth $50,000, which is no small amount. And it was suggested by some Australian women and writers and publishers in 2011. They were concerned at the time that there was a, I suppose, an underrepresentation of female writing being considered for prizes in the arts sector. I think they were particularly referencing the Miles Franklin Award. You know, women, women at the time were writing at least half of the books that were being published but they weren't really reflected in any of the prizes being awarded. Yeah. So the Stella was born and uh, it was modelled on the UK's Women's Prize for Fiction, which was formerly the Orange Prize for Fiction. And the name Stella, our listeners might be surprised to know, comes from the author Miles Franklin, whose full name was Stella Maria Sarah Miles Franklin. So that's where they've taken the name Stella from. So the Stella Prize, because of the virus, COVID-19, is going to be announced online this year. And if you're a particularly bookish person and you're interested in the announcement, you just need to access the Stella Prize website on the 14th of April. I believe the announcement's going to be at 8 o'clock Australian Eastern Standard Time. So you can log, just simply log into their website and you will be able to have a link to be present at the announcement. Oh, cool. It's kind of new territory for us all, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yep, sure We is. can't gather, so things yeah. are going to be done online. So traditionally with book prizes, there's long lists and short lists. Uh, so the stellar long list of 12 was announced in February and then in March, the six books that made the short list. And we should probably mention the six books. There's yeah. four works of fiction, and we're going to review two of those books today by the author's Charlotte Wood and Favel Perrette. And the third book is The Yield by Tara June Winch, which you already reviewed in episode four, Virginia. That's right. Sacred Emus and Missing Sisters. Yeah. Yeah. You reviewed that book. And then the... I love that book. The fourth fiction book is Josephine Rowe's book, Here Until August. And she's a very accomplished writer. She'd previously been longlisted for the Miles Franklin with her book, A Loving Faithful Animal, in 2017. I'm not going to say any more about those two books because we mostly focus on fiction in the podcast. So I thought I would just mention a little bit about the other two books. One is journalist and author Jessica Hill's investigative book, Look What You Made Me Do. And that's essentially a book about domestic abuse, power and control in Australia. 
the statistics in the book are so confronting. One in four women in Australia experience domestic abuse from somebody that they know intimately, which is just staggering. Mm. I've been told that this book is incredible and Sadly, this is a book that's going to be even more important now that now that lockdowns have been imposed. Yeah. So I will at some stage read that. And then the sixth book is a memoir, Diving Into Glass, by Caro Llewellyn. And that's an account of her family. Her father was paralysed by polio as a young man of 20, and he spent his life in a wheelchair. But he was a very determined man. He fell in love with his nurse, and he married her, and he went on to have a really rewarding career in politics and policy making, probably at a time when disabled people were really expected to stay home and do very little. Yeah, and there would have been a lot of barriers for him to overcome. Yeah, huge. So I think the book is largely a tribute to his character. And Caro herself went on to have a really wonderful career in the arts. She worked for Penguin Random House. She ran the she was the director of the Sydney Writers Festival, I think. And then in the early 2000s, she'd moved to New York and she was running in Central Park and suddenly she couldn't move and she was diagnosed with MS. And look, she was very angry and it. I think the book really is about the journey that she went on to sort of summons the grace and the dignity that her father had had and about what an incredible role model he had been for her. So for those of you who... who enjoy memoirs I would look that one up it, it sounds fantastic would you like to do your shortlisted book first so I read there was still love by Favelle Perrette this is a, a very short little novel but it is so full of heart and it's very apparent that this book is autobiographical to some extent just the domestic detail is so precise and it has an immediacy that makes you think that the author, Favelle, really knew what she was talking about. The novel moves between Melbourne in 1980 and Prague in 1980, and then there are occasional other time points to fill in the pieces of the, the puzzle. So there are two cousins. One is a boy in Prague in Czechoslovakia living with his grandmother and his uncle. His father has died and his mother has literally run away with the circus. And then the other cousin is a young girl living with her grandparents in their flat mm. in Melbourne. And the two grandmothers, the Prague grandmother and the Melbourne grandmother, are sisters. They're Czech sisters and their lives are eerily similar. They both live in a small flat they both go out each day with their shopping bag. They buy a Kaiser roll for each person and a slice of Swiss cheese for each person and one slice of Parisa sausage and one pickle for each person and then, then that's lunch. And it's that kind of domestic detail, but it's so beautifully told. It's gorgeous. And then the story moves back and forth. The Melbourne sister and her husband save every penny and they don't have much money at all. And every four years, they've saved enough to go back to Prague on holiday. And they stay in the little tiny flat in Prague. And the love that the two sisters have for one another is evident. And oh, their lovely. happiness and joy at being reunited is so delightful and so heartwarming. And then as the story unfolds, it reveals to the reader how the sisters came 
to be separated. And I'm not going to say any more because I think that that's something that that's the pleasure of the book is unfolding the story behind it. It's a beautifully written book. It has very, very simple language. It could almost be categorised as a children's book, I think. It, the main two narrators are the two young cousins. So mm. this book could almost be pitched at children of the age of those two young cousins. But it hasn't been marketed and sold in that way. But I thought it was really lovely and I can see why yeah, it's beautiful. Um, on the short list. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Oh, I'm looking forward to reading that. Yeah, and you read the Charlotte Wood. I did. I read the Charlotte Wood book, which is The Weekend, and that centres upon the friendship of four women, three of whom, Wendy, Jude and Adele, they all gather at the beach house of Sylvie, who's the fourth, and she's died. And they're spending the Christmas weekend sorting out her possessions and cleaning and, you know, throwing things out. And the women are all in their 70s. Jude was once a well-known restaurateur. She's sort of the control freak of the group, the bossy one. I hate using that term with women, but she bosses them around. There's no way around that. She's uptight and she wants things done sort of just so her way. Her way. Yeah, her (laughs) way. Absolutely. Wendy is a sort of or was once a sought-after and well-known academic. She'd met Sylvie years ago at Oxford as fellow Australians, and she's sort of dishevelled and she's forgetful and appearances don't matter to her at all. And she probably wears her ageing a little bit more than the others. And she's brought with her to the beach house her huge rescue dog, Finn, who had actually been a gift to her from Sylvie after Wendy's partner had died. And he's kind of deaf and blind and he slobbers and he's incontinent and he's not welcomed by Jude at all. And there's some really funny and excruciating moments with Finn, which I won't spoil, but I think he's kind of a bit of a talisman for ageing for the women I was about to say, is he there because he represents the loss of dignity and and all those things with ageing? And also so much more as well, which I, I won't spoil. But the third character who's also really well drawn, is Adele. She's an actress. She's out of work. She's broke. She's terribly self-obsessed and vain. She's aged less than the others, and this is her weapon over them. It's, it's, she yeah. uses it because she doesn't look or act her age. So as happens, I think, in, in groups of close friends, Sylvie's deaths brought their own lives into this very sort of sharp relief. And so... Charlotte Wood treats us to sort of the internal dialogue that they're all having about their past lives, their romantic relationships and their fears. But but mostly what we hear from them is about their friendship with each other and they've got these very frank, personal hypercriticisms of each other and what they're finding increasingly irritating about each other. And I think in some ways you only experience that after you've had this sort of lifetime of friendship. Yeah. And and what I love about this book, Charlotte Wood's been very clever because as you're reading the feelings of one of the three, you're really persuaded of the wrongs that have been occasioned to them by the others and you see things from their (laughs) point of view. And then you you read the perspective of one of the others and you waver. Uh, And and that's true, isn't it? Because in life we build up these internal voices, don't we? Yes. And, of course, they've been friends for such a long time and four have now become three and they're really feeling Sylvie's absence. So as you can imagine, as they begin to clean up the house, 
things begin to simmer. <laughs> and I, it's a lovely scene. I want you to picture this. So Jude has allocated them cleaning up tasks. Oh, gosh. So her opening gambit not long after they arrive is, I've made a list. <laughs> and she is to do the kitchen and the pantry, which is a very messy job. But because she's such a martyr, that's to be expected. And you can imagine the noise that she's making as she's doing it. <laughs> All the jars coming out and clanking <laughs> exactly, on the bench. <laughs> exactly. And Wendy's given the laundry because it sort of gives her access to her dog who is kept outside. <laughs> and then Adele is given the master bedroom, which is a complete doddle because there's not much to sort out there at all. And, of course, Adele, being Adele, takes her time, you know, sits on the bed. And so there's this fabulous visual of them each in their own areas and they're, they're kind of ruminating and they're resentful. And, of course, I'm not going to spoil the story, but there are some very funny moments the beach house sits on this very steep block and so there's several flights of stairs to get to the top, uh, to the sort of big veranda. And there's this old rusty inclinator that goes up and down. And, of course, Adele doesn't need to use it because <laughs> she can go up and down the steps. But the others have to use the inclinator. One's got a bad back, one's got a bad leg. And it's very raw book. It's a very funny book, basically about ageing and friendship. I'm so happy to hear your review of it, Lou, because I had heard that it was depressing, but you've made me really want to read it now. It's beside my bed, so I think yeah, I will. Yeah, look, it, 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 there are parts of it that I did find, you know. Yeah, it, yeah. It, quite raw. And I didn't know that I would want to read it, particularly at this time as well, when we're all contemplating um, our mortality a little bit. There is <laughs> there is an element of that, there's no doubt. Yes. But yes. I felt that the humour and the honesty of it in the end triumphed for me. Yeah, yeah. And her writing is so beautiful. It I, is. I've loved uh, The Submerged Cathedral. Oh, I love that book too. And a couple of others of hers. Are, uh, her writing's superb. What else have you been diving into, Ginny? Well, I feel like I don't have as much spare time as I usually do, bizarrely, because there's just so much more going on and my concentration's not great. But I have been listening every single day. I get up now and I listen to The Squiz, which I mentioned last episode, but I also listen to Corona Cast with Dr Norman Swan and Tegan Taylor. Just excellent only minutes long usually, just an update. And I, I find Norman Swan has been just fantastic through this. He's very measured, he but he's got fabulous. the science behind him. I trust him. And I think that's really important to find news sources that you can trust. So true. There are several that I don't, but he is fantastic. So I'm really enjoying that. And one fun thing, which I think I mentioned to you, Lou, is I really would recommend to people, we're all on Zoom now. We're all having Zoom meetings for work. And we I had a Zoom book club meeting the other night, which was fun and, and strange. But Hamish Blake has an Instagram account. <laughs> He's an Australian comedian. He's hilarious. He's I love his humour because it, it is nasty or doesn't sort of single people out it's just fun and he's been doing this thing called zoom for one more and he <laughs> has invited people to give him their zoom passwords and he has been crashing in on people's work meetings and all sorts of different meetings but what he does is he he takes on the persona of whatever role he's meant to have in the group so in one of the office ones, he pretends that he's the accounts person and he's got this weird tie and he <laughs> pretends he's doing all their payroll. 
And of course, it takes a moment for everyone. They're all looking at the screen and there's, you know, 20 <laughs> different faces. And then suddenly someone realises that there's this interloper in the corner. And then they all realise that it's Hamish and they all start laughing. And some of them haven't got as good a sense of humour as others. And you can tell there's one where people are a bit cross <laughs> and they say, oh, who did this? <laughs> I think it's brilliant. It's so brilliant. And then the one where he crashes a high-performance swimming group and he's got no top on. He's obviously wearing his bathers with a pair of goggles on his forehead and he starts spouting off about, you know, performance in swimming and what times he's been doing. And It's so funny. It yeah, so it's so clever great. and so funny. So if you need a bit of light relief, I would uh, strongly recommend Zoom for one more. It's on Hamish Blake's Instagram account. Well, that's it from us. Uh, we'll get back to reading in isolation and we'll be back in our next episode with more of what we've read. We'll be recommending some books that we like for escapism and we'll discuss the second half of Middlemarch and we'll discuss some other great books. We'd love it if you could recommend our podcast to your bookish friends and rate and review us on iTunes because that really does make a big difference to us. And thank you to everyone who has already done that for us. We really appreciate it. So we'll see you next time. Bye now. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up